Uh, We're in uh, the Gospel of John this morning. We're continuing in that series. Uh, John chapter 10 is where we're going to be. If you um, are using one of those black hardcover Bibles, page 896 uh, is where that is. I don't know how many uh, English language or grammar buffs we have in the the audience, but um, one of the more intriguing components of the English language is the oxymoron. The oxymoron. And if you've never heard that word before, I'm not insulting you, so don't, don't worry, that's, it sounds harsh. That term uh, is it's a figure of speech where you combine seemingly contradictory terms into a phrase. So when I was growing up and I learned about oxymorons, the one example that always comes to mind for me is jumbo shrimp. Uh, jumbo means big, shrimp means small. You put them together, jumbo shrimp, it means something different. And somehow that coheres even though those two words are, are contradictory. There's a, uh, a creative author, uh, and apparently an author who loves uh, oxymorons. He compiled a paragraph to illustrate just how often these kind of seep their way into our vocabulary and our language. So see if you can hear all of the oxymorons that he put together in this paragraph. It was an open secret that the company had used a paid volunteer to test the plastic glasses. Although they were made using liquid gas technology and were an original copy that looked almost exactly like a more expensive brand, the volunteer thought that they were pretty ugly and that it would be simply impossible for the public to accept them. On hearing this feedback, the company board was clearly confused, and there was a deafening silence. This was a minor crisis, and the only choice was to drop the product line. So kind of a silly paragraph. There's 12 oxymorons in that paragraph. Paid volunteer, original copy, uh, simply impossible, clearly confused, minor crisis. We use these, these kind of phrases all the time in our language, not even recognizing that the two words we've put together really, if we think about it, are, are contradictory. So as we're continuing in this series in the Gospel of John, as Steve mentioned, we're, we're asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we're finding different specific answers from these different texts in John's Gospel. In today's text, we see that Jesus is the gatekeeper of grace. The gatekeeper of grace. Now, that's an oxymoron, uh, particularly to our ears in in our culture. Um, That something as free, that something as great, that something as beautiful as grace would have a gate, would have a gatekeeper. Uh, That sounds like an inherent contradiction. Perhaps that's something for you that's always nagged you about the Christian faith. Perhaps you're here and, and you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. You, you don't really know what you believe, maybe. And maybe that's one of the, the biggest struggles you have, one of the biggest questions you wrestle with about how you could come to accept the, the Christian message, the gospel, the good news. The aim for today is that we're going to spend a little bit of time in John chapter 10 and grasp a little more deeply, with a little more clarity, how this works together uh, in the kingdom of God. How, though it sounds like an oxymoron, Um, really, Jesus is truly the gatekeeper of grace. Those things can fit together. So we're in John chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, uh, and you guys can follow along with me on your device or in your Bible uh, as I read. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. 
A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, we look to you this morning. And we're grateful that you gave us pictures, metaphors uh, of who you are and the work that you do. Uh, That's helpful for us. Um, It's so hard, it would be impossible for us to grasp uh, who you are and answer this question, who is Jesus, if not for your kindness to give us an ability to perceive that, to to give us an ability to have uh, metaphors that we can understand at least in some part. Um, So we pray that that as you've given us these words, as you've given us these pictures, um, that we would truly understand more deeply this morning uh, who you are, what you are for us. God, the the promises that you offer and extend to us through the work of Jesus. We pray we would see that with clarity in our eyes this morning. We pray we would cling to it uh, because it is our life and it is our hope. Uh, And we look to you for that this morning and, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the uh, distinctive features in the Gospel of John are these I am sayings. Um, We saw last week some of those statements, some of these I am statements, are what I would call absolute I am statements, where he's not using any kind of imagery or metaphor. He's just saying I am. And in doing that, Jesus is identifying himself with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of the, the Old Testament. But there's also seven of these metaphorical I am statements in the Gospel of John. And up to this point, before John chapter 10, we've already heard two of them. We've already heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. He's the one that nourishes and sustains as the bread of life. We've heard him say that he is the light of the world. And we even got to hear a little bit about that in our time of confession this morning. He's the light that comes into the darkness of the world. But here in this passage, we hear two more of these I am sayings back to back, right in the same in the same text together. Jesus says, I am the door. And a couple verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. I'm the door and I'm the good shepherd. And Jesus is, is both of those things 
at exactly the same time. And that's really where we get this, this notion of Jesus as the gatekeeper of grace. There's a picture of entry here, and there's also a picture of following. And then in, in all of that, in both the entry and the following, there's this promise that Jesus has come to give life. He's come to give life and life to the full, or abundant life, depending on what translation you have there. So those are the three things that we're going to look at when we break down this passage this morning. We're going to look at the call to enter, the call to listen and follow, and the promise of abundant life. The call to enter, the call to listen and follow, and the promise of abundant life. So first, let's talk a little bit about the call to enter. Um, Jesus starts this passage using imagery of a sheep pen and a gate or a door. And he says in verse 7, and then again in verse 9, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. So here's a question as you're starting to think about this a little bit this morning. Is a door a good thing or a bad thing? Is a door a good thing or a bad thing? It depends, doesn't it? It depends. It depends on what side of the door you want to be on. It also depends on what side of the door you're actually on. So all of us are grateful that we, that, that we have doors on our homes. And that's particularly true this week in the frozen tundra known as central Pennsylvania. We love doors on our homes. Doors protect, they insulate. Doors um, create a space for us to rest and for renewal and for building relationships with our family and with friends and other people we invite in. So we love doors. We also hate doors. Um, Have you ever not been able to get in somewhere where you wanted to go? Maybe not get tickets for a show or a concert or something that you wanted to go see. You don't like doors or gates in that instance. Because if they weren't there, you would just go anyway. But you can't. The door keeps you out. And my bet is that all of us at one point or another in our life have had the incredibly frustrating experience of being locked out of something. Your home or your car. Has anyone, I'll ask it this way, has anyone ever not been locked out of something? Has that ever happened to anyone? Okay, wow. Okay, good. It is universal. Good. We were going to have to make that happen for somebody if, if it wasn't already the case, just for the sake of being able to empathize with us. So when Jesus here says, I am the door, it's a picture of entry. It's a picture of entry. And we might love that or we might hate that. Really, it depends on what side of the door we want to be on and what side of the door we actually find ourselves on. From the picture, though, that Jesus paints here, it's hard not to want to be on the right side of the door, to to enter through Jesus as the door. He says that if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. Saved from death. Whenever Jesus uh, talks about salvation in the Gospel of John, he ties it directly to being saved from sin and saved from from death. Uh, Many of you were here in this room uh, this past Wednesday night as we kicked off the season of Lent together on Ash Wednesday. During Lent, we remember our mortality. Uh, We remember that we've come from the dust and to the dust we're going to return. We also, though, remember the reason for our mortality in the first place. That actually death, death is a symptom. Uh, Death is a consequence for the deeper problem of sin. Jesus says, enter by me, be saved from that. Not just the consequence, not just the symptom of death, be saved from the actual core of the problem itself, which is sin. The picture Jesus paints here is also about protection. Enter and be delivered from the robbers, from the thieves, from the wolves. 
uh, enter into protection from those who would harm you. So when you enter through Jesus the door, that's part of your salvation. Uh, this, this idea of protection. Jesus says, actually we didn't get to it, but a few verses after what we read, Jesus says that um, when you enter, no one can snatch you out of his hand. So he keeps his people. He preserves his people. He protects his people. But there's actually one more part uh, to this picture that we sometimes can miss in this. Uh, when most people in our culture think about Christianity, and they think specifically about the image of Jesus as a door, they think about restriction. They think about constraint. Uh, maybe this is your current perception of Christianity. Maybe it was at one point. That Christianity is about rules or gates or fences. And we're so prone in that to, to overestimate ourselves and to underestimate the dangers of the open field that just this idea of the promise of protection usually isn't enough to motivate us to enter through Jesus the door. Usually we don't, we don't see our, the need for that. But notice what else Jesus says here in verse 9. People who enter by him, they're saved, but also they go in and out and find pasture. They go in and out and find pasture. What's he talking about there? Well, sheep don't live in the pen all the time. They don't live in the pen all the time. They go in and they go out. They enjoy pasture land that sustains them, that satisfies them. The, the problem is, is that we, the sheep, we lack the wisdom to know when and how to stay home and be protected versus when and how to run in the freedom of the pasture land. So we need Jesus, the door, to direct even that for us. Jesus says, enter by me, that you might know the joy and the freedom of the pasture without risking your undoing, without risking your demise, and that you might also know the protection and the care of the pen without the captivity of like a zoo animal. You get both, the protection and the freedom. So how do we enter? How do we enter? The metaphor of a door is a great one because truly we enter through Jesus. We enter through Jesus. And as we'll see as the Gospel of John unfolds, all of this is building to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. He guides people both into the protection and freedom of his salvation, and he does that by purchasing it for them with his own life, with his own blood. And this is really important because, see, Jesus might be the door, but what's his disposition in that? He isn't trying to keep you out. He's the door, but he's not trying to keep you out. He willingly gives of his own life so that you and I might enter in. He doesn't have this posture of being the door and like leaning against it, barring it so that you might not come in. He wants you to come in, which is why he will take the extreme measure of laying down his own perfect life in our place that we might actually enter. We don't have to fight him to get in. In fact, what we have to do to get in is to stop fighting. Stop fighting him and believe. How do we enter? We enter by belief in Jesus and his work. We believe that in his death and his subsequent resurrection from the dead, that actually accomplishes our salvation. It actually brings us across the threshold of the door that we enter into his care. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the, the picture of Jesus as the door? Well, we, we should heed the call to enter by believing. We should heed the call to enter by believing. And, and let me just clarify that uh, a little bit more. Um, sometimes uh, Christians will speak about 
how when we serve those in our world, other people get to experience the kingdom of God. When we, the people of God, get to serve in and amongst people around the world, uh, people get to taste and glimpse and experience God's kingdom. And that's totally true. And really, you know, God forbid that we would ever um, wait till somebody else believes in Jesus and confesses him as Savior and Lord until we serve them, until we invite them into community and invite them into proximity with other Christians. But we have to remember the goal for both ourselves and for other people, it's not merely proximity to the kingdom of God. It's not merely to, to taste the kingdom of God. It's not merely to experience the kingdom of God. It's that we and others would actually enter the kingdom of God. That we would be included among the people of God, not just be in proximity to them. So, in seeing Jesus as the door, may we enter, may others enter through him, that we might be saved, that we might go in and out and find pasture. Second, lest we make the mistake that, that the entry is the only important piece of this, there's also in this text a call to listen and follow. A call to listen and follow. The other imagery all throughout this text, and I'm sure you picked up on it as we read it, is about Jesus as a shepherd. Jesus as a shepherd. But he's not just any shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And where the picture of Jesus as the the door is about entry, uh, the picture of Jesus as the good shepherd, it's about listening and it's about following. Sheep are, are wired to know, to recognize the voice of their shepherd and to follow that voice. And this week I came across a great story that highlights exactly that. In the uh, 1980s, the 1980s, during the Palestinian uprising, um, the Israeli army quarantined a bunch of sheep from a local village near Bethlehem. So the army rounded up all of that village's sheep, they put them in one giant pen and locked it all up. A few days later, uh, a woman from that village and her young son came to the guards who were standing guard there at the pen and asked for her sheep back. So she came and she asked, um, she said to the guards there, my husband's dead, uh, this is my only source of income for me and my, my son. The officer who was there said, you know, even, even if he was willing, even if he was willing, there's no way for you to get your flock back out of these thousands of sheep that are all locked up together in this one big pen. So she set up a little bit of a wager. She set up a little bit of a wager, and I love this. She said, if she could identify and separate her sheep from the massive flock, would they let her take, take them home? And the officer, no doubt skeptical in that moment, and probably a little bit amused as well, said, yeah, sure, why not? Just standing guard at a sheep pen, he's got some time to kill. The woman's son, after he said sure, pulled out a little wooden flute, started playing the same tune over and over again, and eventually amongst this mass of thousands of sheep, about 25 sheep from all over the pen lifted up their heads one by one, made their way to the gate, and then followed this woman and her young son home. Okay, that's why it's so fitting and accurate that the Bible portrays human beings as sheep. One of many reasons. But we are wired to know and to follow the voice of a shepherd. The question for us, then, is going to be, whose voice will I listen to? It's not a question of if we're going to listen. It's a question of of what voice. Whose voice? What voice am I going to follow? We're fundamentally wired 
to tune our ears to listen to and to respond to one voice more than any other. And that's why it's so important. Uh, the, The reason that that's so important is because Jesus here says he is the good shepherd. Meaning, meaning that there are other shepherds, there are other voices to listen to that are not good. There are hired hands, there are mercenaries that he describes in this passage. They've got no real skin in the game. They've got no real skin in the game. They don't really care about what's best for the sheep. They're just there for the paycheck or some other kind of benefit that they're deriving from that. So when the danger gets more intense, when the heat goes up a few degrees, when the wolf comes and endangers to the flock, threatens to damage them, threatens to destroy them, they're gone. The hired hands are gone. And we're at risk to listen to hired hands and follow the wrong voice. But it's not just other human beings who are a threat to us. In reality, we actually pose just as great a threat to ourselves as anybody else does. And that, that is one of the biggest lies of our day. One of the biggest lies of our day is that we hold within ourselves and independent of anything else, everything that we need to survive and to thrive in this life. This view is everywhere. It is everywhere, at least in the hyper-individualistic Western world in which you and I currently live. And when I was thinking about that this week, I actually was reminded of a song lyric going back about 12 years. Um, In 2003, singer-songwriter named Jewel uh, wrote a song and released a song called Intuition. And one of the lines from the song, and there's a thousand other lyrics like this and a thousand other songs. This is just the one that came to mind for me. One of the uh, lines in that song goes like this. Follow your heart, your intuition. It will lead you in the right direction. No. (laughs) No. That, That sounds so good, doesn't it? There's something appealing about that. It sounds good. But it is so destructive. Essentially, that view says that that we should tune our ears, the voice we should tune our ears to is our own. And why that's so tempting for us, even those of us who are Christians, is that our hearts, our intuitions, we have good desires. They've been put there by God. We have good desires that have been put in our hearts by God to honor Him, to bring good to others. Um, We have gifts that God has put in us to serve others. We have passions that God has given us and, and he, he w- intends for us to use those passions to play a unique and important role in the world that he loves. But, like the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. Our hearts can trick us into thinking that we've got the right perception when we don't. And our hearts can trick us into thinking we've got the right motives when we don't. Our hearts can trick us into thinking we've got the right course of action mapped out when we don't. So even with the good desires and gifts and passions that God's put in us, when we tune our ears to follow our own voice more than any other, when we conclude that we hold within us everything we need to thrive in life, it will not lead us in the right direction. It will be our undoing. So instead of looking in, to a heart that is deceitful, we have to look out. We have to look out to the trustworthy and constant and faithful voice of the one truly good shepherd, who is Jesus. And as Jesus says multiple times in this text, he knows 
his sheep, and his sheep know him. And they tune their ears to listen to his voice more than any other and follow him. So the question for us then, in light of that, whose voice will we follow? And not just what's the right answer, because I think we could all answer that, but but practically in the day-to-day realities and real-life decisions that each of us make, whose voice will we follow? Because if we're honest, I think a lot of us love the idea of tuning our our, our, uh, ears to follow Jesus' voice until, until it clashes with our own sensibilities, until it clashes with our own opinions, the way we would naturally want to do it. As soon as there's a difference, we want to go with our own take on things. And ultimately, we've got to see, that's not actually listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd. That's trying to make Jesus' voice mimic ours or affirm ours. So what is that for you? It's probably a little bit different for each of us. What is that for you? Where are you prone to do that? Uh, maybe for you, it's, a, it's a, a doctrinal or a theological view. You, you're pretty sure Jesus teaches this, but that rubs you the wrong way, so you'd rather believe that. Maybe it's an outworking of your faith. Jesus calls you to do this, but you don't really want to do that. You'd rather, you'd rather do this instead. You'd rather go your own direction. For me, among many, I'm sure that I come up with one that's, that's came to mind this week. For me, it's learning how to deeply love and selflessly serve people who are difficult for me. Like, I know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus calls me to do that. But in moments where I'm actually called to do that in real life, not just in theory, I can feel myself, with my own voice, making an exception for myself. But Jesus, you just don't understand. You don't understand how difficult this particular situation is. And as soon as I can vocalize it that way, I realize how ridiculous it is. I realize how ridiculous it is. Who understands that better? Who understands that better than Jesus? Jesus is the one who extends selfless and sacrificial love to the very people who spitefully nail him to the cross. So he, he, his voice, the voice of the Good Shepherd, will always call us to love deeply in the situations that seem the most impossible for us. When I create an exception for myself, that's trying to make Jesus' voice affirm my own. So, follow your heart and your intuition. Rather than that, may we know the deceptiveness of our own hearts better than that. May we know the deceptiveness of our own hearts better than that and listen to and follow the voice of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, instead. And then lastly, and briefly, let's talk about the promise of abundant life. There's a call to enter here. There's a call to listen and follow. There's a promise of abundant life. See, Jesus is the door with a very specific intent. Jesus is the good shepherd with a very specific intent, and that intent is to lead you into abundant life. Abundant life. John 10.10, perhaps recognizable for, for many of you in the room this morning. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here's what we need to see in these well-known words from John's Gospel. That it is impossible, it is impossible to overestimate how good Jesus' intentions are for you. It's impossible to overestimate how good his intentions are for you. His intent for you is extraordinary in a way that nothing else can even come close to touching. And all of us in the room need to grasp that 
in a deeper way. Every single one of us needs to grasp that reality in a deeper way. Because though it's impossible to overestimate Jesus' intent for his people, it is possible, and we often do, either overrealize that or underrealize that. So some of us overrealize that. What do I mean by that? Some of us overrealize that. Some of us think that being part of Jesus' people means that we're free from difficulty, or we're free from pain, or we're free from suffering. And that's an overrealization because Jesus says the abundance that he's come to give actually includes all of those things. This is where it feels contradictory, but it's not. The abundance he's come to give actually includes all of those things in this life. And really, it's silly for us to think that if we just had enough faith, we wouldn't have to be like Jesus, who entered into those same things himself. Jesus, who had perfect faith. Well, if we have enough faith, we won't have to do or follow in the same footsteps of Jesus into those things. That's over-realizing this promise. Others of us, equally dangerous, under-realize this. In other words, some of us so resign ourselves to the suffering, to the difficulty, that we forget the richness that there really is in relationship with Jesus. We forget that. We forget that the yoke is easy. We forget that the burden is light. We forget, like we sang about in the first song together this morning, that Jesus is our conquering king who is on his throne, reigning over all of it. We forget that though not in full, we actually do get to, in substance, in reality, taste and experience the joys and the gifts of living under the gracious rule and reign of our God and Savior. Whether you're prone to over-realize that, whether you're prone to under-realize that, here's what we've got to see. The point of the abundant life is not our circumstances. The point of the abundant life is not our circumstances. The point is that because Jesus is the door, we get to experience this perfect combination of protection in the sheepfold and freedom to run in the pasture. The point is that because Jesus is the good shepherd, we get to tune our ears to follow his perfectly safe and trustworthy voice. The point is that we get to do all of that in the midst of whatever our circumstances are. Abundant life is life with Jesus. And he's come that we might have life, life with him. So church, as we see these pictures, may we see the amazing intentions that Jesus has for his people. Even better than that, because he's Jesus, they're not just intentions. He doesn't leave them as intentions. He actually brings it to fruition. He actually brings the fulfillment of this. Jesus is the gatekeeper of grace. We, we must enter. There is a door. We must follow. There is a shepherd that we should tune our ears to. But it's all so that we might experience his abundant life. So may we see Jesus as the door and enter. May we see Jesus as the good shepherd and tune our ears to listen to and follow only him. And as we do, may we truly lay hold of his promise of this complete and satisfying and unending life that he really does give to those who are his. Amen. And pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would constantly remind us of your intent for us 
And constantly remind us that you who are faithful brings about all that you set out to do. I pray that we would see you come to give us abundant life. And I pray that you would even calibrate our definition of what that is. Because we confess our tendency to either overrealize that and complain when we suffer thinking we shouldn't have to, or to underrealize that and wallow when you have opened for us a relationship with the King of the universe. So may we fix our eyes, Jesus, on you. May we enter through you. May we see that not only are you the door, but you have laid down your life willingly that we might actually enter in and you might protect us and free us to run. Thank you for the the unbelievable gifts that you have granted us, none greater than yourself. And as we come to the table this morning, as we remember the cost I pray that we would just see in that and be renewed in our gratitude and appreciation for you. And we pray that in your name.